This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression. And this podcast aims to share it all from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome back to Mom and Mind. I'm really glad you guys are here with us today. Our episode is focused on Caitlin Shattuck. She is sharing her personal story. What I think is really helpful about her experience is how she talks about how severe her postpartum depression and anxiety was, yet at the same time, the pressure she had on herself and from society, I suppose, as well, to continue to be as high-functioning as possible. She shares about her pregnancy and birth and postpartum with her three children aged three, six, and eight. She is a lawyer, and she practiced as a commercial litigator for a long time. And it wasn't until her third postpartum where it became so severe that she needed additional support through an intensive outpatient program, that she decided to change her career. She left her job and is now attending Rutgers University School of Social Work to obtain a master's in social work. And because of her experience, she now wants to work with women and perinatal mood and anxiety disorders to help bridge the gap in care. And she felt that lapse in care personally when she suffered from severe postpartum depression and anxiety after her first two pregnancies. And then again in her third postpartum. She talks about her experience of being hospitalized shortly after her youngest son had turned two, having suffered for many years, even with having some support, but still not having as much of the help that she actually needed. She does also share some of the intensity of her experience, including the suicidal thoughts and feelings that she had that led up to hospitalization. Again, I want to emphasize as well how important it is to be hearing stories from people who look like they're doing fine, but are who are actually suffering internally. This happens a lot, and I'm really grateful that Caitlin is sharing her experience with us. So let's meet Caitlin. Welcome, Caitlin. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. 
I'm really interested in your story because I know you did a career change kind of as a result of your experience. So, you know, that absolutely happens for people when there's something so significant in their life that just really changes their direction. So we'll get to, I guess, that point, but yeah, I'd love for you to start wherever you feel comfortable with where your story starts. Sure. So I guess my story starts about nine years ago because my oldest son is eight. So we're back up a little bit. My mm-hmm. husband and I started, uh, he's, we're actually high school sweethearts. So, yeah. you know, when the time came after life in the city and having fun, we decided to, you know, start to think about having kids. Mm-hmm. A few hiccups, but pretty straightforward. I definitely had an anxious pregnancy and anxiety wasn't something I'd really experienced before or been able to identify, but I didn't really think much of it. You know, the usual, oh, did the baby kick? Did I eat the right thing? Did I do that? And, you know, healthy pregnancy, nothing to really complain of. A pretty uh, healthy delivery. I'll get there. But from the minute my son was born, I knew something was wrong. But not wrong in the Mm -hmm. sense of I know what this is, but just this overwhelming sense of dread, panic, Mm -hmm. But I thought, well, I guess that's just motherhood. I don't know how to change a diaper. This baby doesn't know how to feed. I don't know what to do. Right. You know, the hospital telling me, you know, feed him right away, hold him right away. He had a high belly rubin count. So they were very, very adamant that I feed him. I pump, I feed him, I pump. Mm. They kept him in Mm -hmm. the room with us while he was under the lights. So all of that, you know, I just, I couldn't change his diaper. My husband had never changed a diaper, but neither had I, but I was panicked, constant panic. And then in addition, every time they'd come in the room, they'd say, you know, can you pee? And I'd say, I'll try. And I, time and time and time and cathering, cather out, I couldn't pee. So they kept saying, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. We'll just try again tomorrow. We'll try again. We'll try again. So ultimately the day comes for us to go home. And two days of the hospital, I'm like panicked in tears. Our son is still under the lights. I'm so afraid to go home. So I convinced them that we should stay another night because Mm -hmm. I still can't pee. And Mm -hmm. they baby still has a high belly rubin count. Yeah. So we stay an extra night, mostly because I was afraid to go home. Yeah. And I even remember the pediatrician saying to my husband, you know, keep an eye on her, make sure she's okay. Like she's but, you know, this can happen. So lo and behold, we leave. And uh, I went home with a catheter, which, you know, w- w- was okay, but didn't add to my, <laughs> it just added an extra layer to the newborn yeah. stress. And, you know, my husband kept saying to me, why are you so upset? This is what you wanted. Like, we finally got everything you wanted. Aren't you happy? And I wasn't. I was less than happy. Not happy at all. Plus, yeah. I also had to carry around a catheter (laughs) bag, Mm -hmm. which took, so just from the beginning though, I just turned inside and thought, well, this is motherhood. I guess people are, I'm so tired. I like my upset. I don't know what he needs. Constantly checking if he's breathing. I even cried on the car ride home thinking, is he breathing? My husband's like, you're sitting right next to him. And I'm like, I know, but I don't know. Like, I don't know. Can you check? Just have no, you know, no confidence. Again, I thought all of that was just general. So ultimately, I wound up having to go to the urogynecologist and self-catheterize for six weeks. 
And all the time, everyone kept saying, oh, it'll be fine. You'll be able to pee. It'll be fine. I'm like, well, I guess. But this is really inconvenient. <laughs> so yeah. that stress on top of the baby for about the first three months. So as an attorney leave, this commercial litigator had been at the same place at that point for about I don't know, seven, eight years. And so left, took six months of maternity. I cried every single day for the beginning, mm-hmm. asked my husband to stay home. Mm-hmm. you know, and he didn't fully understand and kept saying, I have to go to work. This is your job. Like, what do you want to do? Why aren't you doing this right? And I mm-hmm. don't understand. And mm-hmm. so panicked about everything from sleep and the baby <laughs> sleeping, you know, obsessing about the sleep schedule, the life schedule, the feeding schedule, constantly worried about breastfeeding. Is he getting enough? But then, you know, I was very obsessive about sleep and I was insistent that he had to sleep for a specific amount of time. And then the wake window had to be specific. I read every book under the sun. Mm. And then I kept saying, how do I know when he's tired? How do I know my husband? I would call him at work and he's like, well, I'm not there. Figure it out. So ultimately, you know, things were not going as I had envisioned. But again, I thought it was just motherhood. And then you know, I kind of started to know something probably wasn't right is that I would sometimes lie in the bathroom and just think, I wish I could just like, you know, can I just break this mirror and flash my wrist, you know, mm-hmm. like really, really dark thoughts, but I didn't share them with anyone because mm-hmm. I was terrified of, yeah. are they going to take my baby? Every time I'd go to the pediatrician or my OB, I'd cry, but I would just brush it off as, nah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. I like to, I was a high functioning I guess, depressed and anxious mother, but I could play it off. I could pretend I was fine, just like the best of them. Yeah. So I finally, though, did start seeing a therapist and a psychiatrist, started taking medication. Probably my son was about nine, 10 months, but still very, very dark thoughts a lot. Still no understanding fully of postpartum depression or anxiety. Like there was no relief from medication or therapy at um, that point? I think there was some relief from the medication. I mean, I certainly tried a bunch of different ones, but there wasn't like a great relief and the therapy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think part of it was that I wasn't always totally honest because I still like, I didn't even with my own therapist feel that comfortable disclosing how I felt. I just right. felt this intense shame, stigma, worry. I guess I was mostly worried that if I tell someone how I really feel, they'll say I'm not fit to be a mother. So I didn't, you know, disclose that much. And my husband, while he was understanding, I think he didn't, we'd never dealt with like a depression or a mental illness before. So both of us were blindsided. Right. And, you know, he was like, well, can you just get over it? I don't even fault him because it was like, I don't know, he didn't know what's happening, neither did I. But I also had in my mind that I wanted a second kid, despite all of this. And I had it in my mind. I was going to have it as, you know, I, this is when I want to have a second kid. I, and my husband's like, are you, my our oldest was about one. And at that point I had been on medication and was, did start feeling a little better. I wouldn't say I was, you know, I still had, you know, very dark thoughts at times, still engaged in, you know, a lot of destructive coping mechanisms. Can I ask what you mean? Or So as I was saying, you know, we wanted to have another, I was convinced I needed another kid. Maybe I thought it would cure me of how I felt, or I had to do a redo of some sort. And so, but even though I had started feeling better and our son was about one, when I had these thoughts of, okay, we, I know on another, you know, I still definitely had dark thoughts and still engaged in 
some self-harm behavior. And I think the reason I started self-harming was because I previously, you know, throughout this whole period of from his birth until now had very strong at times suicidal thoughts. And mm. so self-harm became sort of a way to make sure I didn't do that to mm. cope with it in a, in a destructive way, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So it's really even, difficult. That So that is also, you know, I imagine who are you telling about that? Right. That's one no, of those um, things that's like super secret. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so at that point, I, I was better at opening up to my therapist mm-hmm. and my psychiatrist. So they sort of monitored and helped me through that. But yes, I was, you know, that also, I think, contributed to a lot of my going inside and not talking about how I really felt. Yeah. So, but I was convinced that, you know, I want to have another and yeah, maybe it was to to do a better job or to have a different experience. Mm. So that time, you know, we got pregnant really easily. Um, could say we were barely even trying, but I, I had it in my mind. I wanted to do it. And, you know, I was fortunate that I had the support system. I then had a therapist and psychiatrist who monitored me. I did. I had a lot of back and forth about staying on medication. I Mm. felt a lot of guilt surrounding that, even though, you know, I was told it was okay. I felt terrible and awful during the pregnancy that I had to, you know, take something that I thought was more harmful. Everyone reassured me it wasn't. I took me a long time to grapple with that. We had, so my second son is two years and a couple days older than my first. So two years in and lo and behold, postpartum depression comes right back. Mm. This was not not a different experience. Maybe it was different because I knew where to turn a little and I had support system. Yeah. And I had a therapist and a psychiatrist watching me. Right. Still couldn't pee. (laughs) I had the same thing thing happen. It wasn't quite as long. Mm -hmm. I knew it would probably happen. So, but yeah, the same feelings of, you know, suicidal thoughts, self-harm, all of the above. I adjusted my medication here and there, but never felt 100% at all. Still didn't feel great. I had periods of feeling okay. Went back Mm -hmm. to work as a commercial litigator, took six months off. And again, I put on that. I was the high functioning Mm -hmm. mom with postpartum depression. No one knew. Maybe my family, a little bit of friend or two, but nope, I'm perfect. My kids are perfect. I'm Mm -hmm. perfect. I'm a Mm -hmm. litigator. I can do it all. I'm posting away, you know, the best of them. This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go. And that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Uliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. 
My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. That's like living two lives in a way, just, you know, your outward facing life and then feeling, I assume, having to hide all of the rest of how you felt and yes. mm-hmm, from um, everybody. Yeah, I hid it from everybody. And I felt such shame and stigma, mm-hmm. like I couldn't uh, speak up. And I, I mean, at that point, maybe I was less worried about you know, someone will say, oh, you're a terrible mother and taking your kids. But I would always say to my therapist, well, like, how can I be a lawyer and a commercial litigator and have two kids and also tell everyone how depressed I am and that I suffer from severe postpartum depression, that I feel suicidal, that I engage in self-harm at times? Like, how can I tell someone that? And I could never, like, I just wouldn't budge. I couldn't do it. And I remember mm-hmm. she would tell me, you should, you know, you might benefit from these other therapy programs, you know, maybe DBT therapy. And all I would say is I don't have time for that. Who has time for this? I don't have time for that. I don't have time for any of this. I have to do my job and have kids. So I did start to feel a little bit better at times. Like I said, it was definitely, it was waves up and down, up and down always. Like I never had full relief Mm. for long periods. And then I decided to have a third kid. Mm. <laughs> you might question why. And I don't know, because it was just in our life plan. My husband wanted three. We kind of wanted three. So three years later, I had a third boy. And that time I didn't have quite as much depression and anxiety after having him. It felt a little different. And then, During pregnancy was... During, I always had... No, I mean, but all of my pregnancies were healthy. I did have a lot of anxiety of, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, did the baby kick? Did I eat the wrong thing? And maybe each time it got a little less, but definitely, you know, enough anxiety that in each pregnancy, I certainly, you know, was the, went to the hospital saying, I don't feel the baby kick or a lot mm-hmm, of anxiety mm-hmm. surrounding that. And and even such anxiety that I'd go to the... When I'd go to the appointment at the OB, I'd leave. And I'd feel so much more anxious. And I'm like, oh, I waited two weeks, four weeks, whatever it was to hear oh. the baby's heartbeat. And then I'd leave and be like, well, wait, maybe I didn't really hear it. Or I'd be Googling, oh, is this heart rate okay? Is this blah, blah, blah? Yeah. I'm like, oh, I didn't ask this question. Or I never felt that relief. I would yeah. wait, I would get so anxious and built up going to the appointment, even when you go to the scans and all of the screenings would come back normal. I never felt better. I was always like looking for something else. Mm-hmm. So then I had my third October 2019. And then four months later, COVID hit. Mm. So, you know, we had no childcare. We had three kids. I had gone back to work for the third time as Mm. a commercial litigator. And life wasn't terrible. All things considered, it was okay. You know, I think sometimes in those instances, like when you have no choice, but Mm -hmm. to survive, like Mm. looking back now, I have no idea how we had a five, a three, and a zero in our house and homeschooled and both my husband and I worked. We had no child care. We had nothing. So I think we like 
had to band together during that period. And then it took until like everything sort of easing up a bit to maybe be able to process what had happened and be like, you know what, I'm really not okay. But I Mm. had no choice during that period because Mm -hmm. I'm in like pure survival mode. So then about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, I found myself back at work, three kids and the pandemic resurging. And Mm -hmm. I still suffered from anxiety and depression. Uh, You know, it all started as postpartum depression at that point, whether you know, it was postpartum, just general depression. You know, who knows when the postpartum period ended. Work was stressful. COVID was stressful. The holidays were stressful. Everything was just like a culmination of maybe all those feelings I'd had yeah. for the past eight years. And I still didn't tell anyone. That's a so, long time to suffer. Right. And so I didn't tell. And like I said, I had periods of, there's plenty of periods of joy with my kids and times sure. feeling okay. But I worked very hard to put on this facade and it was the day after Christmas and I had a complete panic attack, extremely suicidal, didn't know what to do. And that was the first time where I was felt like really, I might not be okay. I mean, there's been many times I might not be okay, but that was the first time I was like, I'm not okay. And I don't know what to do. I have to call for help. Had you had the support of your therapist and psychiatrist through this? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I talked about things in more generalities. And I remember I was sitting in the bedroom and it was the day after Christmas and the stress of the holidays. Um, My family had just left. We had hosted, which, you know, (laughs) only added to I remember I said, my husband and I were actually kind of in a disagreement about something about the holidays. And I was like, I needed help. And I told him, I was like, something's wrong. Like, I feel I'm very at risk of suicide I feel but I feel like like not just like oh I have these thoughts in my head or oh I'm going to self-harm it's like something's wrong and so you know he was like what do you mean what do you mean and I said I'm gonna just call my therapist so he called her and she I talked to her for a few minutes and she was like you need to go to the emergency room right now of course I'm still I can't go to the emergency room that's gonna ruin my life and everyone has COVID and she and I remember she said to me you probably won't die of COVID, but you will die of suicide. So I'm either calling 911 and you mm-hmm. can have an ambulance come to your house or you're going to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, still, like, I guess I, at that point, I was so in such a bad state that I actually didn't think so much about, like, what are people going to say? What I was like, okay. So my husband, we got to watch the kids. My husband took me. The line was out the door of oh. everyone had COVID. And She's like, just put me on the phone with the triage. Just put me on the phone. And so I said, okay. And probably everyone there hated me because I cut the line, I guess. But I was Mm. in such a bad state that they did. They took me in right away. They put me in a room. I don't know. I mean, it's sort of a blank as to like, I have no idea where I was or, but I, all I could remember was, I think I was in like the holding cell for, we don't know what to do with you people because Mm. I could hear police outside talking to other people. I could hear some people yelling and screaming and they had taken all my stuff. So, which makes sense in retrospect, but I, I remember I was like, I don't have my phone. I don't know how to call anyone because mm-hmm. I only had a few numbers like memorized. In my head oh yeah. Files, who knows, but, anybody's know, who knows number. what their numbers are anymore. Yeah. So I said, can I have my phone? And I remember I called my mom, but I still was like ashamed to say, I think I'm going to kill myself. So they took me to the hospital. So I kind of was just like, I don't know. I'm here. I'm like having a panic attack. And 
my mom called my husband, a few people, you know, but I still was like a little bit thinking like, oh my gosh, what am I going to tell people? And, or I don't want to be here, but I knew I had to be, and I knew I did in Mm -hmm. some ways. So they came and took an assessment and, you know, those memories of that are very fuzzy. And then I remember them saying, well, we want you to go up to the fifth floor. Will you voluntarily go there? And I said, well, let me talk to my therapist. And I called her and she was like, I think that that's what you need to do. Like you Mm -hmm. need to go to the psychiatric floor. Mm -hmm. And so at the time I agreed and I said, okay. And yet at this point, I hadn't eaten anything. It must've been 12 hours since I had, you know, gone to the ER. And then I remember lying in like the middle of some floor because I couldn't be left alone. So, but they didn't have a place for me yet. So Mm -hmm. I remember I was like, okay. And I could hear like things going off. I could hear people talking about me. You feel kind of like detached or disconnected. Okay. Uh huh. I definitely was like, I hear people talking about me. I'm lying in this bed. I don't really know where I am. This Mm -hmm. isn't really happening. Mm -hmm. And I had spoken to my husband and I like, he was kind of just what's going on. Where are you? What's happening? And I was like, I don't know. I think, you know, I'm trying to figure it out. I don't really know. And then ultimately they took me up to like, you know, the locked psychiatric floor. And the minute I got there, I was like, nope, I don't want to be here. Absolutely not. Like, Mm -hmm. well, I, I didn't say I would go here. Absolutely not. And you know, the psychiatrist and social workers, he's like, well, you can sign a 48 hour hold, but you have to stay here for 48 hours. I was like, absolutely not. You lied to me. Nope. I'm going home. Like, I Mm -hmm. do not want to be here. Absolutely Mm -hmm. not. And they were like, okay, sign this, but like too bad. And I was like, you know, livid. Yeah. So now it went from a voluntary hospitalization, I guess, to involuntary. Well, yes. I mean, it was, it was the floor of the hospital ward. So it still was voluntary. But I guess once you submit to that, they can monitor you for 48 hours and mm-hmm. release you if you request, but you can't leave within 48 hours. So I kept saying, you tricked me. I can't believe you did this to me. You told me I could leave. So then, you know, I was shadowed by someone because I couldn't be left alone. I refused to eat. I was sharing a room, but then I they were like, fine, we'll give you your own room if that'll make you feel better. I'm like, nothing will make you feel better. I'm going home right yeah. now. And I think still that was now, you know, even though I'd been into such this state and I still felt it, I was like, I can't be here. I don't want to be here either. Again, I'm ruining my life. Not recognizing the severity of, well, I actually, you know, suicide or really dark thoughts could ruin your life too. So it took me a little while of speaking to the social worker, my therapist, the psychiatrist there. And I, I think I finally agreed that I would stay while they figured out, you know, what would be the best option for me. Mm-hmm. And I calmed down a little, for, you know, they obviously gave me medication to help me calm down, I suppose, and definitely calmed down a little. I think saw things the dark cloud maybe cleared a little and thought, okay, these people are here to help. Like I shouldn't be angry and mad at them. They're just trying to save my life. So ultimately I wound up saying just for three nights and, you know, just to make sure that I was safe, you know, they took, obviously when I got there, they took all, they still took my phone. They took my clothes. They took everything. You couldn't even wear the mask with like the little metal (laughs) pieces. They gave you another one. And yeah, I mean, I still was super 
ashamed. I didn't, the only person besides my family, I called my best friend from childhood, who's still my best friend, because she's one of those phone numbers that like, mm-hmm. still remember. Yeah. <laughs> I called her from the hospital. <laughs> I, I was wondering, my messages weren't going through. And I, you know, I t- told her. So she was like the one support I had outside of my family. And then yeah, I came home. I took a leave of absence from work. I had left my desk with a thousand papers. No, you know, every time I've gone on maternity leave, I at least kind of closed my cases, handed mm-hmm. things off. This was just, mm-hmm. and I felt horrible. And I remember my coworker though, I had just told everyone at work, like, you know, I'd had like, I'd been hospitalized, but I didn't give like, you know, I just said I had had some issues. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember. It was very casual. And yeah, yeah so then actually couldn't have been nicer. He's like, don't worry about it. I literally already went through your stuff. Like we'll take care of it. And I was like, Hey, I'll be back soon. Don't worry. I'll be back soon. And then I, they put me in a outpatient IOP and it was actually a DBT program, which is what my therapist told me I would have benefited Mm. me years Mm. before. Mm. And it changed my life. Honestly Mm. changed my life. It was three days a week of a group and like an individual, it was virtual because it was still pretty COVID-y and it was amazing. It was so nice to be with people. It was not, you know, postpartum faced or whatever, but it was so Mm -hmm. nice to be with people who also, you know, shared mental health concerns. There was no judgment. There was no nothing. The skills we learned were, Mm -hmm. you know, easier said than done to implement, but I really felt like it had a course and, you know, there was things to meet and homework to be done and things mm-hmm. like that. And so I had it fully intended. I think about the program was supposed to be about three months or dependent. And I actually stayed in a little longer because I had taken a week off and then readmitted. Mm-hmm. So I had fully planned after four months to go back to work. I told my boss, you know, I was just um, taking some time. I had some personal issues mm-hmm. going back to work. And he was like, great, um, you know, just let us know what you need. Like, could not, I'd worked with him for so long that he was like, this is great. You know, what you need, whatever you need. I didn't even really disclose though. It was like mental. I'm just like, I'm taking a little bit of personal mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Obviously I got a note for disability. Yeah. No one still a hundred percent like knew exactly what had happened. And I, I don't know, one day I was like sitting in the class or the DBT program. And I I loved the social worker who ran it. And I remember thinking like, wow, I feel like I could really help people. Not because I'm so great, but because like, wow, she's doing such a great job of helping all of us. Like Mm. there's so much more I could be doing in my life. And Mm. that night I sat down and was like, I think I want to get a master's in social work. And and I looked up the requirements. This thought had never crossed my mind before. And I looked it up and I was like, let me see what I even need to do. And I wrote my personal statement fully on how I want to, you know, bridge the gaps in maternal mental health, erase the stigma and shame all of the things that I felt. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah. And like when I told, I told the social worker who was writing, she's like, that sounds amazing. And then I remember I told my mom and she was, who also was a lawyer. I was like, oh man, I wish I did that. That sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah. you know, my husband maybe had a little bit of different initial reaction, but ultimately yeah. was on board. Yeah. And I developed this extreme passion in there's such a gap in care in like maternal yeah. mental health. And I always say if someone had watched <clears throat> me nine years ago and like even the anxious pregnancy I had, yeah, maybe would have noticed that like I was losing my mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Just for people, just for reference, people who are listening, IOP is intensive outpatient program and DBT is dialectical behavior therapy. 
you know, works for so many people for so many reasons. But in your experience, and it sounds like this was in the IOP program, one of the first times you felt like deep relief or like Mm -hmm. that you were, you had some help and support along the way, but it didn't sound like it fully helped or got to you the way that you needed in this deeper way. Yes, I think, you know, that, I mean, look, I credit the doctors who saw me along the way with helping. Sure, sure. But I think something about this also got deeper because maybe it's what I needed was the group setting too of being Mm. like, okay, this wall of stigma and shame I have, I can drop here. And Mm. these people are all suffering, varying, you know, with mental illnesses and there was no judgment. And even though, of course, my therapist, my psychiatrist, there's no judgment. I still felt in the outside world, like I had to bottle it all up. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was like the first time I was, even in my personal statement, I was like, it's the first time I feel like my mental health journey really almost began or Mm -hmm. because I finally like let down, I was forced to, I went Mm -hmm. to the hospital. I almost Mm -hmm. killed myself. Mm -hmm. I was Mm -hmm. forced to like, let this wall down. I had no choice. And so if you had asked me, well, you take a leave of absence to do a therapy program from work. Are you kidding me? Absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. How would I do that? I have my caseload. I have to go to court tomorrow. I have the, you know, of course, how can I fit this into my schedule? I have three kids. So I remember though, I called my boss and it was kind of around the time I was like I've been about four months. I was I think you thought I was calling to say, Hey, I'm like getting ready to have plans about coming back. And I had decided I needed recommendations to apply to school. And I've worked for him for so long and I didn't want to apply behind his back. Yeah. And I called him and I said, I'm gonna I was like, Hey, I have something I want to tell you. I'm gonna apply for a master's in social work. Uh, will you write me a recommendation? <laughs> and he and I remember he was in the airport and he said, Well, I'm proud of you, but this is the most shocking thing I've heard all day. He's like, <laughs> and I said, you know what? Let me send you my personal statement. It will like let you know why I want to do this. And it revealed that I had been in the hospital, that I had postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. And I remember he called me and I was like, of course, I'll write your recommendation. But why didn't you tell me any of this? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I-, I couldn't. I just like couldn't. I don't know. Right. I mean, there's throughout your story, I'm hearing like how intensely focused you were trying to be on your career and remaining professional and keeping up the whatever life and appearances and all of that stuff. And just how important it was for you to do that at the same time. Wow. This is so much energy. It takes so much energy to do that while you're suffering. But there's like that part of you that was just like, nope, we're going to keep doing this. We're I'm going to keep it on. Yeah, it was like my coping mechanism in mm-hmm. some ways. I mean, even mm-hmm. still today, when I suffer from some depression and anxiety, people still say to me, oh, you're so high function. I'm like, that's like my default coping is to yes. like layer it all on and pretend all is okay. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. you know, those house of cards crumble eventually. <laughs> you can't sustain it forever. But I'm still pretty good at pretending all is okay, but that's not what I want to do anymore. Is that I don't think you should, yeah. you know, I have to practice what I preach. So my goal is in entering the field. So I'm now MSW getting a master social work at Rutgers. I'm in my second semester and, you know, wanting to solely work in maternal mental health and in sort of erasing some of that stigma and shame, which, you know, I think the world is going in a better place towards doing that. But 
you know, even recognizing that some of the major reasons that women don't get help is still stigma and shame mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. lack of resources, lack of access. There's just this huge gap in care between, I don't fault the OB and I don't fault the pediatrician because it's like not really their job is to, you know, deal with the mental health aspect of pregnancy or relating to anything perinatal. So it's like, where does that fall? You know, and I see it today, even at my internship, working with an agency that deals with perinatal mental health. And it's like they get a number, we call, there's a wait list, we have a wait list. And then sure, maybe that was the person's one, like one moment where they called and they're like, nope, yeah, shutting this back down again. And there's just nowhere to turn, <clears throat> lack of resources, lack of access, insurance. There's just, I'm not going to be able to save the world, but <laughs> I hope I can make a little dent in awareness of, you know, post-traumatic depression and mm-hmm. maternal mental health is just so important. So, so I did, I left my job, left yeah. that whole mm-hmm. <laughs> like 14 year career behind me. Yeah. That's a massive change. It's a good stress, but still stress for sure. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids, because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. So what I think is I'm really grateful for you sharing is just how high functioning you were while you were severely depressed and severely anxious, because, you know, the picture that people have of what severe depression and anxiety looks like is that you're incapacitated and eventually you got to a point where you were, but for eight years and the time took a toll on you as well. But that's what a lot of people look like. And it's not that you're just in a dark room, like under the covers, although that happens for sure, or that you can't function at all, even with however anxious you might feel. Again, that does happen and can happen. 
But this is particularly important because of the pressure that women have on them to, you know, do all be all and pretend like you're fine uh, when you're not. It's, I mean, we got to blow that up and say, no, that's not going to be a thing anymore. (laughs) Right. I mean, there are certainly reasons people learn how to cope in high functioning ways. A lot of people do, but man, like if there had been a different, you know, you can't go back and erase and change things, but if interventions or things were offered to you or things helped in a different way early on, you wouldn't have had to suffer for eight years. Right. I totally agree. And I think I maybe would have been more receptive to care if it was, you know, or even doing the DBT program eight years ago or whatever, or if that was what was recommended. You know, I was so afraid to speak up at work. Not that I'm faulting the people I work with. I didn't tell them. I mean, but I was a commercial litigator mm-hmm. in a group of all men, you know, and I was going to tell them I have this postpartum depression and anxiety. And then, you know, I already had felt, which that coming back as a mom was already hard enough. And mm-hmm. then coming back as a mom twice and three mm-hmm. times mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, would I be cut out for it? Would they think I needed to leave early? Would they think I couldn't do it? Would I get passed over for things? And so, yeah, I mean, I guess if there's even been more awareness or discussion at work or, you know, mental health, I was lucky that I got disability at my office, but a lot, you know, even the phone calls I had to make to the state and do all that were uh, atrocious. And I'm thinking, sitting here, I remember saying to my HR, you know, it's a lucky thing I can like survive without this paycheck that's taking many, many more weeks to get Then, like, it's not my company's fault, it's the state's fault. And it was like, because otherwise, like, what do people do, you know, they're who need this. And so they're just, like I was fortunate in that regard. And I was also fortunate, even though I didn't get, is that I could pay for mental health services mm-hmm. at various different times, having to pay for things out of pocket. So even with all that in my favor, I still struggled. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it makes right. me think about other people who don't have, like, aren't privileged or have the mm-hmm. access. And so it's disheartening. But um, yeah, yeah. yeah if, if it was, like you said, it's become more people are speaking up. But I think I just had this picture of my head of a mom of three commercial litigator. Like I spent my whole life trying to be perfect or get it all done. And now what I'm supposed to say, I have a mental illness. Mm -hmm. I think that's something I have seen a lot for. And when I say like high functioning, uh, sort of high power people who are then experiencing this mental, emotional setback and challenge. I don't know if this is your experience, but if it's almost like, oh, I don't want to say harder. How do, how do I want to say it? It's like you're used to being able to set your mind to something and get it done and do it. And in some ways, in a tenacious way, no matter how much it takes, no matter how hard it is. And I'm not saying that other people give up, but there's like some sort of internal pressure and drive. And then you reach something where you can't do that. And it's almost devastating. Like that you can't just get over. I always say that pregnancy in general, it's the first time you can't work harder to get something done. Right. You know, so it's the same thing. So I think a lot of women or, or anyone who's used to, if I just try a little harder, if I just spend a little more time, Mm -hmm. if I just Mm -hmm. do it a little better and I can control the whole situation and then you try and get pregnant. And you're like, oh, I can't try any harder at this. Like there's nothing else. I I mean, sure, there's things you can do, but you literally can't try any harder. And Mm -hmm. then you have a baby 
and you lose all sense of control. And no matter how hard I try, I became obsessed with baby sleep. No matter how hard I try, I can't make you sleep for 47 minutes as opposed to 42. You know, I can't try any harder, but I kept thinking I'm doing something wrong. There is something yes. wrong with me. Yes. So there's something wrong with me. If only I could fix that, mm-hmm. I would be pregnant faster. I would, the baby would sleep for 47 minutes and mm-hmm. not 42. And society perpetuates that because, mm-hmm. you know, every other mom's book out there is like, well, if you just do this, if you just do this. And then um, I always say to the mom's group I run right now, like they're not robots. You know, these babies aren't robots, but it's like, what do you do if the wake window is 44 minutes, but it was supposed to be 90 and I'd, I'd like crumble and fall. I was like yeah. a disaster. I couldn't, I, there was some, I was doing something wrong. It wasn't right. this child is just a child. It was, I have failed and I don't know how to fix it. So exactly. Right. Said. Like I can't work harder. There's nothing I can do to work any harder. And that feeling was a little crushing for me. I didn't right. know how to deal with it. Yeah. Um, right. You said it felt like failure. A hundred percent like failure. And perhaps that's why the coping mechanism is to be high functioning in like every other area and mm-hmm. just be like, mm-hmm. okay, well, I can only, this is all the other things I can potentially control. But mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. it's a dark and lonely road when was, yeah. you don't have anyone to talk to really about it. At what point, and I know you said early on, it felt like, okay, this is just what motherhood is. At what point did you know or realize or were told or whatever that this was postpartum anxiety, postpartum depression? I remember calling my OB at about six weeks and was like, I don't know, I'm still crying a lot. Like, you know, people say maybe it's the baby blues. And they were a little dismissive and said, well, I can write a prescription if you want, but you know, like, well, I don't know. That's not happening. Or like, yeah. what? I'm not doing that. And then, yeah. so I think I just pushed it off as, okay, I guess it's still sort of normal. And then mm-hmm. when I started to, like I say, which I don't recall the exact, but it was probably around like two, three months that then I started having, like I said, I would lie in the bathroom and just be like, can I jump out the window? Can I? Like, this was use- with the first? Yeah. Can I split uh-huh. my wrist? Like I need to get out of, how do I uh-huh. escape this situation? And I said, that's when the self-harm sort of became a coping mechanism instead so that I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I, so I think it was like six months then I started seeing a therapist that a friend had recommended. And I didn't disclose a lot of that total darkness. Cause I was like to her right away. Cause I, I didn't and right. probably, around nine months when I did, she was like, okay, you know, I think you should see a psychiatrist as well. And like, maybe we can get medication involved. Like six months that I out that I probably even heard postpartum depression or anxiety. I had been going to a mom's group, but I didn't disclose how I was feeling. And I had, I had some other friends that I was one of the first sort of, but I had some other friends who had babies at the time or whatever. And you know, we definitely talked about down days and things like that. And just the mm-hmm, general, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. you know, hard times of newborns in general, but I didn't, like disclose my feelings to anyone and even not really my husband. I mean, I hit a lot of for my husband just because mm-hmm. I think he didn't understand either. And I was, like I said, I was just waiting for someone to be like, well, you're a bad mother. How could you have these thoughts? I'm, t- you know, you're done. Yeah. It's like I said before, it's a long time to suffer. It's really hard to be honest with yourself, I think, about how bad you feel. Mm -hmm. Even though it's weird, like you can know it, you can know you feel horrible, 
but that like other part of you that maybe is still like trying to cope really hard to just be like, it's okay. I'll just, if I get more sleep or whatever, we start to minimize and discount our own feelings. And it's hard to grapple with just how bad you feel and not succumb to it, but that's not what I want to say, but um, accept, get into a point of acceptance. It is just this bad. And I do really need this help. Because if you've already felt like, oh, well, I'm a failure for, you know, not being able to figure out all this stuff, it can feel like weakness to admit to yourself that it's really that bad or another failure. You already feel bad enough. Right. Another failure. And the feeling bad is my fault. And if, oh, I mean, I certainly had the stereotypical viewpoint of depression prior to going through it. Like, can't you just get up? Can't you just get up? You know, which is awful. Now I look back and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I used to think that way. And if I heard about someone else, just get up and deal with it. Or Mm -hmm. what are you talking about? Or just, I don't know, go for a run. You know, something that, you know, someone (laughs) said to me now, I'm like, well, that, you know, I get where they're coming from because they don't understand. And so that's why even what you said is we have this image of someone like who, you know, maybe is hiding under the covers mm-hmm. as depressed, but then we have a high functioning person and it affects all shapes, sizes. And that's what I didn't realize yeah. about postpartum depression either is mm-hmm. that it affects, you know, so many different types of people and it can, right. you know, sometimes they're predictors, but they're also don't have to be, it can come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But So knowing, I guess, what you know now, being able to look back on this time that you had, and I'm thinking of the people who are listening to this and listening to your story, who can really resonate with this. What would you have told yourself and what would you hope for people who are going through this now? Sure, absolutely. Well, the number one thing I wish is that I had been more open and, you know, my story alone isn't necessarily going to make someone... I get how they felt and, you know, I get how they feel if they don't want to open up, but also to recognize that there are like these great resources out there. And so, you know, there's support groups for women dealing with postpartum anxiety, depression, and some are anonymous. I mean, I'm currently a postpartum support international mentor. And so I speak with someone who, you know, she's in the thick of it right now, like I was once, and I wish I had had a mentor. Or I wish someone, I felt what helped me was to listen to other people's stories. So Mm -hmm. I feel like that also helped me to feel like, even though it would be a stranger, let's say I read a book, helped me to feel like I wasn't alone. I'm not the only person experiencing it. So Mm -hmm. I wish I had, you know, looked into more of that and, you know, looked into the support groups. Like I said, for the group mentality for me is sort of what changed my life and, Mm -hmm. and being with other people. And there's new moms groups that not just the new moms group, let's meet up and have coffee, but the ones that like really deal with depression, anxiety. And like the other thing I would tell someone is I wish I had advocated for myself, you know, the OB and the pediatrician, they ask, they want to help you. But if you don't speak up, like uh, my therapist always tells me even now, like she's not a mind reader. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and those are safe spaces. I didn't feel safe at the time. I don't know why. I just was so worried that someone was going to think I was a bad person, but the reality is like, that's a safe space to speak up and tell someone how you're really feeling. And if they say, and say, no, I I really, I need help. Do you have resources? So, and to remember that you're not a failure. Like I thought I was a failure because I had depression, but in retrospect, would I think I was a failure if I was diagnosed with something else? And I'd speak out about it. Probably Mm -hmm. I'd say, oh, that heart medication really helps me. Or, oh, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't take a leave of absence from work and lie. I'd say I have a heart condition, Right. you know? So I think just, we need to change the way people view 
mental health. And I guess my plug for that is it starts with you and it starts with me is speaking out and telling our stories in the hopes. Exactly. I just wish I had been more open. Mm-hmm. It's a really hard lesson to learn in a really hard way. But man, it does sound like you had such a journey and are, you know, literally have changed your life's goals, which is, I don't know, I assume being a lawyer is really stressful. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine it added to you feeling better. (laughs) No, it didn't. But you know what? I always say I didn't just, I actually liked being a lawyer. I didn't like, I enjoyed it, but I just feel like I could use my skill set in a different way mm-hmm. and help people, you know, lawyers help people. I'm just helping mm-hmm. people in a different way. And whether it's that I'm treating clinically or advocating for better care or, mm-hmm. you know, helping people find resources, this is like a whole area where a lot of help is needed. Like maternal mm-hmm. mental health is at the forefront. Like we need to do something about it. We need to do something about, you know, all these women suffering. So that's yeah. my goal. Absolutely. Well, I know you've helped people just by sharing your story here and sharing your healing journey and your perspective. I know it's helping people. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story and being with us today. Caitlin mentioned in this episode that she is a mentor for Postpartum Support International. They do have one-on-one support available, including support groups and a therapist directory. So if any of you are experiencing anything like what Caitlin described, or you're having an experience that you know you need help and support for, there is help available. You can reach out to Postpartum Support International at postpartum.net and be sure to get started on your healing journey. Thank you all for being with us. Until next time. Please find the Mom and Mind podcast on momandmind.com or wellmindperinatal.com where you can also find access to my free online mini course that is specifically designed for people experiencing anxiety in the postpartum period. Or you can learn more about the three and a half hour self-paced course that I created just for managing postpartum stress. You can also connect with us on social media at mom and mind on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for tuning in and learning more about perinatal mental health. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're gonna talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.